You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Planning for the winter both financially and professionally as an archaeologist. The Sierra Mark Podcast is a show with a panel of experts that talk about the issues related to professional archaeology, mostly in the United States. Welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 121 for October 11th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. Winter is coming. That's right. Turns out it comes every year in this world. What can you do to prepare both professionally and financially for winter in archaeology? We give our best tips and tricks on today's episode. So start thinking about your wildest dreams and what you do if you had the time, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Stephen in Calgary. Hello. Doug in Scotland. Hello. And Bill in California. Good morning. All right, so uh, I'm. It's it's end of September here in uh, Reno, Nevada, and um, we got snow yesterday. Uh, that would be September 23rd. It's one of the earliest days we've had snow in uh, in a long time. I think they said something like 20 some odd years, and. That doesn't mean anything because it's going to be 80 next week. However, it's indicative of a winter coming up that is uh, probably going to be as severe as last year, if not more severe, at least here in North America. Uh, and specifically, I'm speaking from the Great Basin. So I know we had a pretty severe winter here in the Great Basin and across much of the country and Canada and, and all of North America. So what we're talking about today, as I mentioned in the intro, is planning for that as an archaeologist and not just... Not just planning from a work standpoint, because everybody's kind of thinking about, well, what kind of work am I going to have over the winter? Am I going to have work for the winter? But also financially. And of course, those two are tied intimately together. And I've actually got, I've had for a couple of years now, a book pretty much completely outlined based around doing this type of professional and financial planning over the course of a single year, which is sort of a metaphor for your entire career, um, if you break the year down into quarters. Um, But... What I want to talk about today is some of the tips and tricks and strategies that all of us have used to uh, sort of combat the winter and how to deal with that. And just to help frame the conversation, what I'm mostly talking about is, um, you know, again, where I work here in the Great Basin, we do pedestrian survey. And what that means is we walk across the landscape and we see what we can see on the ground. Uh, Most of the land out here is BLM land. And the BLM has certain regulations. If if more than, uh, I want to say... 50% of the ground is obscured uh, by snow cover or even vegetation for that matter. You have to talk to them. But if it's obscured by snow, you can't do pedestrian survey. You have to be able to see the ground. So when the snow starts to fly out here, if it's cold and we even get a light dusting of snow, we can't go out and do survey because we can't see what's on the ground. So that's when work starts to drop off quite severely. You might have in the early part of the season, sometimes where that melts and sometimes where that, um, you know, it, 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 it makes the ground so it's visible again, but it just means you're starting to get into winter. And once probably about December hits, uh, sometimes November in some years, maybe this year even, you're pretty much done doing field work in Nevada. Now, maybe some of the lower lands you can do field work in, but definitely a lot of the high desert areas, it's just not possible. And this is true across a lot of the country. Uh, if you're doing shovel testing, you can still often do shovel testing <laughs> as long as you can get a shovel in the ground, which is an issue as well. Um, but And if you're doing excavation, you can still often do excavation. Again, there are some considerations you have to take with heat and things like that, making sure the ground, if it's got a lot of clay in it and it starts to freeze, I mean, you might not even be able to to break it apart uh, without serious heavy equipment, which will damage artifacts and features anyway. So lots of things to take into consideration. So one of the things I tell people is 
you have to start planning. Well, really, you should start planning years ahead of time. But if you're going to look at this from a one-year standpoint, from January to December, you have to start planning at the end of the last dry season. And by dry, I mean work-wise. So the winter, and which, you know, let's just say like November to February or so, we're going to plan to have that time off. In the first couple months of the year, you got to start thinking about the next winter and what that means. And so that's what I, how I want to kind of frame this conversation. But I was first want to get thoughts from uh, Stephen, Doug, and Bill on their thoughts about the winter and the regions they've worked, what that means for their regions and, and the places that they've worked in, and, and how people have kind of planned for that. Uh, Bill, I think we'll start with you because you work down in the Southwest where uh, you do have higher elevations that get snow, but you got a lot of places that you can probably just work year round. So is winter that much of a consideration or is this construction still slow down in the winter and people have to think about it? What's the deal in the Southwest? And you've also worked up in Idaho too. So, you know, talk about that. Yeah. So, um, in Idaho, you're done around this time of year. Um, uh, I guess they had the snow apocalypse last year, but most of the time in Southern Idaho, it's not necessarily so snowy. Um, but eventually there will be enough snow. And you were talking about, um, if you can still get a shovel into the ground, yeah, you can take a breaker bar and break that mm-hmm. permafrost up and go down. However, that upper four inches or two inches or whatever that you're breaking through, you're not really going to find any artifacts because uh, permafrost doesn't go through a screen, no matter how much you want to grade it through. It just doesn't go through a screen. So yeah, uh, that's one consideration. Essentially, you're not going to get what's in the upper frozen part. But yeah, eventually snow will cover most of the prairie and then you can't really work. In Western Washington, the wintertime essentially meant misery because it was going to be freezing. Well, it would be just above freezing, so about 37, 38 degrees, raining all day long. So you'd be soaked all day long. Mm -hmm. And I had to switch my gloves out several different times, bring different dry pairs of gloves so that I didn't get uh, frostbite. But we kind of just kept working all winter. Uh, In the southwest, it didn't seem like it ever really slowed down. However, uh, you mentioned something about construction and the pace of construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is unique to all parts of the country, but it always seemed like in the Southwest, the highway department and everybody else, it seemed like they had money and they wanted their projects to go ahead in uh, July. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's because, you know, the fiscal year ends or begins right around then. So, you know, we were most busy when it was blistering hot out. However, there were several long projects, uh, excavations and stuff that went over the winter. And in the wintertime in uh, Arizona, at least southern Arizona, and also central, you know, the Phoenix area, Arizona is famous for the monsoon rains. They call them monsoons, but they're seasonal rains that happen in the summer. But the most damage and flooding and stuff happens from the winter rains because they just are persistent and the soils are waterlogged. And so... the if it rains in the wintertime, you can be sure that your excavation area is just going to be this disgusting mud that you can dig through and you can find artifacts, but you're losing all stratigraphy and people mm-hmm. are slipping and sliding in the in the desert soil. So uh, rain there was more of like, you know, it ruined the archaeology, but you could still survey and you could still work and you could still walk around. Um, so as far as preparing for winter, in my experience, a lot of times, especially after I left uh, Idaho, the, the slowdown was really going to happen because no reports were really going to get reviewed and read unless that project's budget was closed out at the first of the year. So from Thanksgiving to about New Year's, there was just this 
total morass where any agency or company or you know client, most of them, unless they were construction companies, were kind of just you know slowing down. Everybody was taking vacations. Key players weren't going to be there for you know two weeks in December, and then nobody was really going to be ready at the first of the year. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, you couldn't get stuff to move forward mainly because your clients or the people you were working with were not going to be at work. So in that case, a lot of times you end up just not having work because you can't build to a project without moving to the next step. So you just kind of have to stop working. Uh, most of the time, the second half of December is just, you know, you're off. You're going to be off for two weeks. You're mm-hmm. not going to get a paycheck. Uh, you better be ready. I guess Santa needs to send you some you know, a paycheck because that was pretty much what was going to happen uh, for the second half of December. Hey, Bill, um, can, can you go back and, cause you were talking about getting things done by the first of the year. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Cause I don't think that's like a universal thing. Okay. Uh, in my experience, a lot of times um, some projects would have a stipulation that it needed to be the final reporting and budgeting and the final submittal needed to be in by the first of the year. So if that was the case with that particular project, then you needed to have the the write-up and everything done by uh, January 1st. And and remember, this is happening around Christmas time when sometimes your client is not actually going to be at work. Uh, Maybe you could contact them by email from the 25th to like the 30th or whatever. But other than that, you were kind of flying you know, on your own and just had to get this thing done by uh, November 1st. So there was a couple of times where even though I had vacation or my parents were in town or I was out of town, I still had to finish the report even though I wasn't actually there. Uh, does that, I guess, does that? Yeah, and well, is that stipulation coming from the client or the shippo or? Usually the client. So usually they'll have a project that they have to finish out by the end of the year. And so by them having to do that, then you also have to do it too. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't very common, but that was just the way that the way that the budget, you know, or the or the contract was written up that we needed to have our draft done by the end of the year, and um, you know sometimes that would end up happening. So sometimes those projects would be the ones that consume a lot of time. I know sometimes there's tax considerations for for closing things out by the uh, you know by the end of the year, so it's not sometimes somehow reflected on the, you know, the next year's taxes or something like that. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but that's the only thing I could think of that would be related to like December 31st. Yeah. You know, it might also just been like, it's due on a certain month and that happened to be December. Yeah. So if you do the field work in September and they wanted it done in 90 days, then that ends up being December 31st. Right. Right. All right. Well, Stephen, you've worked, uh, you worked uh, extensively in Wisconsin for, for a long time and now you're up in Canada. So, um, and, and, and I know you were, you know, basically full-time employed, uh, but how did winter impact, uh, the area in general for archeologists? Uh, and I really mean more field techs and, and, and maybe, you know, what you did over the winter as well to, to keep yourself busy. In my last job, uh, we had an ongoing, uh, uh contract with, uh, you know, your base year and option years and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it was a set, set amount of work for, um, the, for a one year period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the way we would do it is, um, we also tended to do like an annual report, one big report for a lot of the, a lot of the field work that we were doing, um, except for certain, you know, high priority, uh, projects that need to get, uh, shippo concurrence, uh, sooner than that. Mm-hmm. So 
generally the way we would structure it is that we would do um, field work uh, pretty much uh, May through May into November, the beginning of December, and then lab work until uh, like uh, have lab staff, uh, keep a smaller amount of lab staff on mm-hmm. into like February or late January. And then, um, you know, those final few months before the spring um, is, is, you know, uh, the mad dash of uh, report writing. Up here, it's it's a little bit different, um, or at least my job's different. Um, it, my job is more project by project focused, um, and and work does kind of dry up in, in the winter. Um, and, and part of that is uh, a combination of like like you guys were talking about, where you can't do the field work because the weather is um, not very cooperative, but mm-hmm. but also that um, because it's that unpleasant, we kind of discourage <laughs> work in, 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 you know, the harshest part of winter. Yeah. It could be um, dangerous. Yeah. Again, you know, I mean, in, in February, uh, it, you know, especially if you're any farther North in Calgary, it's, it's, um, you know, negative 30 temps are yeah. pretty common and negative 30 is, you know, that that's in, um, Celsius, but that's still really damn cold for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you Imperial people. Um, right, right. For, so for us, we, we tend to, uh, um, yeah, it, it slows down. Um, and, and you kind of go down to like, uh, just your kind of permanent staff mm-hmm. and, you know, really depends on if you had big excavations or not. And, and, you know, do you need people to process artifacts or not? Mm-hmm. And, and if you have a lot or, or not. What uh, what in general is the permanent staff doing over the winter? Is it really just lab work or, um, you know, because this whole this whole saving, I don't know about if saving is the right word, but maybe planning projects. So report writing happens over the winter is kind of interesting to me because, you know, here in Nevada, most of the reports you're going to write are for federal agencies and they don't. I mean, you don't have the ability to say, um, we're going to put this report off for like four months. No, you have to start that after the field work is over. And then you have timetables in place, you know, that, that aren't based on the season. So are these private clients that are allowing you to do the reports later? Or is it just a scheduling thing? That was part of a federal contract. And, and, but it was a multi-year federal contract. And, and so it's like, here's your, here's your giant amount of field work that you have to do. And, and, you know, in talking with them, it's like, okay, here's how we're going to break it down. Okay. Um, you know, and we're going to break it down. So we're going to do the field work first. That way, um, you know, we, we can focus on the lab work uh, later. Mm-hmm. And part of that is kind of the structure of, um, you know, the agreements that, you know, the, the agency had in place. And, um, you know, because uh, it, it, it's kind of a timing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if something popped up and, and it needed like, we need concurrence next week or something like that, then, then, you know, obviously we can't do that. Right. Right. Um, but, but if it's, uh, like a revolving process of work, particularly like section 110 work where there is no project mm-hmm. wait to happen, um, you know, as long as they get, you know, get their report submitted within, you know, the frame of the contract, which is again, a year, um, they're, they're not necessarily, um, too impatient about, you know, when they get the concurrence from. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, Doug, uh, let's go to you next at the end of the segment. You've worked, uh, I know you've worked in the United States, but also you've been in the UK for a long time. Um, what is, how has winter impacted uh, up there with the type of work that gets done in that area? 
The short answer is it really doesn't. Um, <laughs> there's a jet stream that comes up, and so the UK rarely gets below freezing, huh. um, even though we're pretty high up. I mean, we're basically at the same um, latitude as most of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just a, uh, a jet stream coming up from the Atlantic basically means that we actually rarely get snow as well. Um, if we get snow, it'll be in the higher elevations in the highlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a big deal when it snows. Um, and I, I remember the first year I was here, they had the, uh, the worst snow in, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And coming from New Mexico, I did not think it was that bad. Um, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a couple of inches of snow. It stayed around for a little while, but it's similar to what I'm used to uh, in the high desert is it'll snow, but by mid-afternoon, it's basically gone. Um, so you get a lot of frosting. Uh, it can slow down work a bit for excavations in that it gets cold and rainy and you really don't want to be out there, similar to um, Bill's experience. Uh, and occasionally we do get sort of freezing where it'll freeze the first couple of centimeters of the ground. Uh, but again, you can just sort of break that up. So in the UK, winter really doesn't have much of an effect. There is a bit of a slowdown, but that has more to do with um, construction. Mm-hmm. So fewer people want to be out in the wind and rain and coldness. Um, and so that slows down construction. And from my understanding, there are some issues with you don't want frosting. Uh, you don't want it too cold for old buildings when you're doing uh, so repointing and stuff like that. So if you if you have an older building that you're renovating and you need to go in there and fix the, uh, the mortar and stuff like that, you don't want the mortar to uh, freeze or frost. Mm-hmm. So that tends to push more work towards the summer because uh, we do get frosts, but that's pretty much it. For the most part, work continues. Um, that's not the same for all countries. Uh, Norway and Sweden basically have eight or nine month seasons, and then they completely shut down. So right. essentially, if you're doing archaeology uh, in the Nordic countries, for the most part, you work spring to fall, and there's just there's absolutely no way you work during the winter. Uh, too much snow, it just freezes over. Um, but for most of the part throughout Europe, it gets cold. It can get mm-hmm. a bit miserable and wet. Uh, but you don't have that sort of problem of, say, North U.S. or Canada where you get like a foot of snow and it stays there for six months or something. Right. Okay. Well, so those are a few perspectives uh, from the, the co-hosts today and, and, uh, and the places that they've worked. So just keep that in mind when we frame the rest of this discussion for the next two segments, that wherever you happen to be working, this situation is going to be slightly different and, and just apply apply what you can and, and, and better yet, ask people, especially if you're new in the field, ask people around you uh, right now on projects that you're currently on, what they've done in the past to help prepare for winter and what they do and some of the strategies they use to you know, not go hungry and live on the street or, or work at Old Navy for the rest of their lives. So... And, and that's something we'll talk about as well. But we'll do that on the other side of the break. 
This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back on CRM Arc Podcast episode 121, and we're talking about what to do over the winter in, uh, you know, primarily in the United States, North America timeframe uh, uh, location, uh, but really kind of applies to anywhere that has these seasonal problems, um, seasonal, seasonal work affected by seasonal situations, whether that's construction slowdowns or weather impacts or something like that. Either way, you know that in the region that you work in, uh, wherever that happens to be, you're going to be out of work during the winter and winter could be November to anywhere from November to March, even October to March, depending on where you're working. Um, it could be any one of those months and you need to know for your region, what's the average time that people are out of work. The best way to do that is just ask your coworkers if you've never worked in that region before. But the best thing to do is to plan for that, of course. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let's assume that you're going to have, I want to say two to three months off. I think that's a good average time frame for most people. Um, but let's assume that that's uh, what's going to happen and, and and what you can do uh, to affect that, okay? Uh, what you can do to mitigate that. I'll start it off by saying you should plan to have that time off. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, I was surprised by it my first few months, and we just kept looking for work. I always actually managed to find something, but one of the ways I managed to do that, which is here another strategy, is to just move regions. We move all over the country. You know, I was working in uh, North Dakota my first season, and the uh, winter shut down our project, and we went to another project in Miami, Florida, where we worked right through the winter. So, but of course, there's going to be more people searching for fewer positions. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what you're, you're going to deal with over the winter. Even if you move to another region where you can work, other people are having that same thought. So you're going to have to, you know, step up your skills and, and be, you know, hot on those applications. So just kind of wanted to elaborate on that. Um, cause I think that goes beyond, uh, just winter, um, that Indeed. the nature of our work, because it is so project by project, you know, um, dependent, it, you know, we, ha- we are basically hired to do projects. Um, even if we're semi-permanent staff that, you know, we're brought on, we do projects. And then, you know, if there are no, if there is no work, you know, you're going to get let go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, you know, not even thinking about winter, like if, if it's just a slow year or your project suddenly loses its funding that, um, having a little conception that, you know, at any given time, that might be it for now. Yeah. Um, that you, you kind of need to carry that with you. And, and on the plus side, if you carry that with you, then, you know, if, if, um, you, you, you just keep working, then, you know, that, that's, that's how gravy, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, you're right about always be networking. I mean, that's something that I, I didn't learn until I had been laid off numerous times that, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I was just focusing on this job and, happy that I had a job and it was supposed to be permanent. And then two, three years in you're laid off again and you're trying to find a new job. And then I, no sooner did I find another one a couple of years later, I'd be laid off again. So 
It took me a couple of times, actually, you know, close to a decade of doing CRM to realize that you should always be networking because you never know when the gravy train's going to end and you're going to have to find a new job. Mm-hmm. But going back to the surviving in the winter, uh, I didn't, I wasn't always able to just leave every, uh, leave the region when the projects ended up. So sometimes I had to stay in place and find some kind of way to survive. And whether that meant being a janitor or, you know, working at a grocery store, I've worked as a cashier several times, you know, you got to pay that rent. Mm-hmm. And if you can survive until, if, if you've been saving all the while, uh, through your, uh, cultural resources job, however you could, then that should keep you going until you can find a new job that will supplement unemployment. And then you can find some kind of a new job. Fortunately, Christmas is one of those big times when they actually need employees. (laughs) So if you've ever done, you know, folding clothes or been a cashier or something like that, there's a lot of places you can work usually in your area and they need more people to fill in the gaps. Uh, Another excellent way to survives if you've ever been a stalker like at a grocery store or a bigger <laughs> store you know if you if you know how to stock you know how to uh um, set up displays or even drive a forklift you'll never go hungry there's mm-hmm. always somewhere how somewhere that needs you especially during the winter to stock that stuff and you know a lot of times people get laid off after christmas however after christmas is when people bring things back that's when all the big sales you know happen so a lot of times the the thunder of Christmas keeps rolling into January. Uh, and if you've, you know, managed your funds, right. And you know, you're living, uh, affordably and you can survive, then, you know, that's one way that you can make it. Just find a whole nother, not archeology span related job that it's understood that you're going to go back to archeology. span You'll keep trying to find archeology span jobs, but you know, you'll keep your bills paid doing something else until then. Mm-hmm. That's a real benefit, I think, to us as archaeologists. Well, a real benefit would be that we're all employed all year long. But however, <laughs> since that's not the case, <laughs> we, we we do have a nice sort of juxtaposition of our, our seasonal work being the, the time when other people's seasonal work is not happening. You know, it's opposite. So the winter seasonal work, for especially for Christmas, like you said, Bill, is actually a really good one. There's a lot of jobs that open up just for that time from when our field work t- typically ends to maybe not when it f- picks right back up, but at least takes you a couple months into it. Right. Um, and like you said, even into January, people are still uh, have those seasonal employees on. And, and, you know, you might be able to work yourself into a situation where since you're seasonal anyway, and they know they're going to lay you off and, you know, sometimes they might even keep a few people on for a little while longer. But if you tell them, listen, I'm not looking for anything permanent here, but if you can just employ me for like another two months until I find another job, I mean, if they're only, if they're paying you minimum wage or, or maybe a little more or whatever, and you're just, you're stocking or you're, you're folding shirts at old Navy, or you're doing whatever you're doing. They might do that. You, it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, especially if they know they're not committing to you for a long time, but financially they can afford to keep you on for another couple of months until you find something else. And then, and then also talk to him and say, listen, my position is completely non-essential. Uh, you can replace me in a heartbeat. Do I need to give you two weeks notice? You know, can I just, can I just bail when I get another archeology span job uh, and just set that out right out in the front? So you don't look like a jerk for just bailing immediately and you don't burn that bridge for maybe next year when you want to do it. So yeah, that's definitely some things. And Bill, I'm glad you started bringing this stuff up because you've talked extensively on your blog at Succinct Research, and that's always linked in the show notes, um, about your side hustle. And sometimes your side hustle, if you've got that going throughout the year, becomes your front hustle, <laughs> becomes, you know, becomes 
becomes what you're going to do. Um, and, and, and I'm going to throw it to Bill to, to kind of talk about some possible side hustle stuff that you could keep going through the winter. But before I forget, a couple of jobs that are really winter focused that I've personally heard of people doing is like... Um, uh, like snow removal equipment. I've heard of people doing that. You have to get certified so on some of that bigger equipment, but like working for DOT or your local city or something like that and pushing a snowplow. Those are the kind of things that only happen over the winter, obviously. Um, ski instructor, if you know how to ski or, or ski patrol or something like that, if you're a decent skier and you live in an area like that, you can do that over the winter. Uh, I know I know one guy, now this is a very, specified, very specific thing that not very many people are qualified for, but I know one guy that's an, a tax accountant and he just did taxes uh, he started working on them about January, of course, and did tax preparation for people until about April, and then was an archaeologist the rest of the year, a field archaeologist. So um, there are some skills that you can gain throughout the year that you can just do over the winter, and then you know, or maybe even like half of the year or something like that, and then go on with your with your archaeology career and uh, and do that the other half of the year. So, Bill, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, some of the side hustle stuff you've talked about? Because you're you're kind of the master of the side hustle, I think, or at least uh, or at least talking about it. <laughs> the, 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 mas- the master of trying side hustles. I'll tell you that. Uh, how much money I make from them, you know, that's always that's always. Uh, up for discussion. Yeah. But yeah, you know, um, you're talking about side hustles that are, uh, so, you know, there's kind of two kinds. There's the kind that you can set up and then you just get, uh, you know, you, the, the job just kind of does itself while you're working. Right. So being like a drop shipper. So you buy things in one area, you set up an Amazon store or, a, you know, some kind of, uh, automatic store like that. And then it mm-hmm. automatically just deducts from your manufacturer and then just go through Amazon straight to the person. So that's one thing that I have not actually done, but I know, um, not an archeologist, but a mom that ended up for, you know, a million reasons when you have kids, you stay at home. And so she ended up, that was, that became her hustle. She set up a, a online store where it was just a drop shipper business. And I've watched her since my kids got older, this is, you know, approaching her spouse's income. She's been doing it for six years or so now. And so that's, kind of one of the things that she's doing now. And then uh, uh, we just talked about other kinds of things that you do that still require you to be there. So in that case, doing something like becoming a ski instructor would be excellent, right? Because you have those specialized skills. Uh, there's another lady I worked with that was a kind of, she was an archaeologist, but was too old by the time I met her. Well, she's not an old woman, but she was older than she wanted to go out and dig shovel probes. And one of the things she used to do was, um, sail ships from the Puget Sound to the Caribbean mm. for rich people nice. and then sail, sail them back when they needed it. So she was a sea captain, essentially, not that's a awesome. pirate, a, a legitimate sea captain. <laughs> not a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what she did when it got to be cold and she didn't want to be outside in Seattle anymore. Mm-hmm. She just sailed those ships around to the Caribbean so those people can have vacations that's and awesome. they paid her. Uh, so that's another specialized side hustle that you do that you have to have the skills now, I obviously she could have built that into her whole thing of just sailing people's vessels all over the place to wherever they wanted to. And there were people, the you know contracting company she worked for, that was their job. They did, you know, schedule captains like her to take these yachts to places where people wanted them, and then the people just met her there and sailed them around, mm-hmm. and then she sailed it back. But that wasn't her whole thing. So, you know, my thing of uh, doing online writing uh, eBooks and stuff. Obviously, I could do more. However, I don't know how because <laughs> all of my day is full of doing my actual main hustle. 
But uh, still, I've helped other people um, build websites and, and create, you know, edited other people's eBooks and other things that they've done for their businesses. And so that is something I have a couple of those uh, projects under my belt. And that is something that I actually could expand upon. Thank God I don't have to right now, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause that's, that's kind of a, a tough racket, right? Yeah. But at any rate, uh, it's something that I do have experience with. And that has helped a lot with um, doing archeology, span editing other people's writing has helped me. You know, my writing needs a lot less editing now because that's something that I've done uh, a decent amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, uh... It's what, what are, so some of the other things you can do as well, because um, like you said, Bill, if you've got a side hustle that's going throughout the year, maybe like like the eBay thing or you know Amazon store, and that was another thing I was going to mention when you were talking about that. We do a lot of traveling as archaeologists, and I know I know at least a handful of people. Uh, these people don't happen to be in archaeology, but there's no reason an archaeologist couldn't do this. We're always going around different places and stopping into bookstores. We love stopping into used bookstores and just keeping an eye out for some of those really gem of uh, a deal in a bookstore and then just turning around and selling that on eBay. <laughs> I know a lot of people that do that. They'll go to like the penny sales at, at used bookstores and just grab a ton of them and then sell them for a dollar on eBay. Uh, and even with, uh, you know, people are paying for shipping and stuff, so you don't have to pay for that. And, and it's not very much and it might be a lot of work for you, uh, but it might be something that you're willing to do. So that's, that's an interesting kind of way to do it. But uh, I do actually know several archaeology field techs that used to do the eBay, eBay sales and they would go uh, to um, like Goodwill in yeah. the really nice neighborhoods, upscale neighborhoods and buy stuff and sell it. Nice. And they were making hundreds of dollars a month. Yeah, it's not much, but it's enough to have that extra supplemental income. And if you're throwing that straight into the bank, if you're able to live on your salary and your per diem, and you can throw those several hundred dollars in the bank, over the course of nine months, you might be able to build up two or three months salary for you to live on over the winter uh, in case you're completely out of work or want to be completely out of work. So, uh, The only advice I'd, I'd add to that is if you're going to do that, definitely keep track of your time mm-hmm. and keep track of your time answering emails, all the sort of other stuff that you don't really, you wouldn't really think about. Um, and then calculate how much you're actually making off of, you know, these sort of side hustles. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I know some people who have done stuff like that. And when they finally do the calculation, they're making something like 50 cents an hour. Um, <laughs> at that point, like just go get a job at McDonald's. Yeah. You'll be happier. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just, to, to add, always try to calculate the the costs and see if, you know, maybe you're not making as much money, but if you're, if you're, if it's going up every month and you're making a little bit more, it may be worthwhile sit, uh, sticking it out. Mm-hmm. But, um, for everything else, always calculate your time. Cause I know a lot of people who do stuff like that and it, it ends up, you don't actually make a lot of money off of it, mm-hmm. you know, depending on if you're, how you're doing it. That's a that's a really good point, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example. My kind of side hustle that I'm trying to move to a to a primary hustle is is the Archaeology Podcast Network. <laughs> it's not it's not very profitable right now. It brings in, you know, maybe 150, a couple hundred bucks a month on average, and uh, which isn't a lot of money. It's definitely not enough to live on. However, um, I spend an, an amazing amount of time on the APN and doing things and keeping it going. And I'm, I mean, I'm probably at 25 cents an hour, you know, like you said, Doug, I mean, I'm probably making, when I look at the time that I'm investing versus what I'm getting back, it's not that much. However, 
I mean, if you're just doing, you know, some, some BS work that really is taking a lot of your time, you're not happy doing it. You don't enjoy it. And you're spending all your time after work during the normal season doing it. And you're not making enough money or you're making just pennies. Yeah. Go get another job over the winter, do something else. But if you're doing something like, like people do love going to garage sales and yard sales and, and, you know, selling stuff on eBay, if you actually enjoy doing that, then maybe it doesn't matter how much you're making per hour. If you're making enough just to keep your, keep your bills paid and keep you happy, then, uh, that's a consideration as well. But yeah, you don't want to burn out and, uh, and kill yourself over it because definitely a lot of people have done that. So, um, now let's say you've, uh, You've got a job over the winter. Uh, you found something to do that's not taking up a crazy amount of your time. It's enough to pay the bills. Um, Bill, one of the things you wanted to talk about was some of the other stuff that maybe is related to your own career and preparing for the next year and doing different things that you could do during that winter time. What are some of those things? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because a lot of us, like I was saying, always be networking. We're not really thinking about that. When, when your stomach's full and you've got a roof over your head, you're not necessarily mm-hmm. thinking about what's coming next. But I know that um, being a member of the Society for Historical Archaeology, the conference for the SHA is always in January. And for better or for worse, because <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot of complications that come with having an international conference in January. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, part of that time from Thanksgiving on was trying to get my uh, presentation going for the SHA. So I know some people who um, would give the talk right before, you know, they would write it like the night before or they would be putting together the PowerPoint. You know, that was always too much anxiety for me to build something the night before I had to give it. So I spent a few weeks beforehand actually, in fact, writing it, mm-hmm. which that's a good that's a um Uh, like a good practice because then if you have a written manuscript, even if it's just five or six pages of um, decent thought, that's the foundation for an article. And there are some of my SHA presentations that I've published, not just as a grad student, but when I was doing CRM, I got some of that stuff on their uh, blog and in the newsletter. And I know several other people who their SHA or SAA talks turned into something that went into the newsletter. So, you know, uh, I remember at the time, many other people talking about how, I'm not going to get paid for doing these talks. Maybe if you're lucky, your company will cover your time and and pay for you to stay there. Maybe, maybe they'll pay for the lodging and they'll give you just the, you know, your normal salary for the day that you're there. So you'll have to use vacation time. But to me, it always seemed like it was a good investment because I was going to go there. I was going to meet a whole bunch of other people. I was going to give a talk. Usually 99% of the time was about company stuff that our company had already done. So it was kind of like they're getting a commercial for uh, doing the work. And then in the meantime, I had something to do in the winter. And of course, this was almost always after work at night, I was doing, you know, free archaeology, essentially, to get these presentations together. But, you know, it was one way that I was able to cope when I knew that when I was going to come back, there wasn't really going to be that much to do. Um, So that was one way to survive. And then another thing that I did was I used to be a a docent at the uh, African-American museum there in Seattle. Oh, nice. So I used to give tours of the museum and I used to help some of the uh, students do research. Um, and that was purely volunteer. But once again, my hours were down to 30 hours a week sometimes. So I didn't actually, in fact, have full employment. So I had a little bit of time. I could go on a Saturday and uh, donate some time to help other people or give tours of the museum. Mm-hmm. So those were all, and I also have given talks to uh, public schools. Nice. So those are all just kind of 
things that you don't get paid anything to do, but they, in a lot of ways, kind of, they help you not only articulate what you've done for your company and, and give you something to think about. So when you're digging shovel probes in the rain, there's actually something worthwhile coming out of that that you, mm -hmm. you're going to feel good about. But also you're staying in that network and staying connected to people um, in other ways that, you know, hey, if something ends up happening, you have a friend somewhere. Right. Okay. Well, that's really good. And so uh, in the third segment, when we when we start that here shortly, uh, we're going to go into a little more solid um, planning ideas uh, that you can hopefully try to implement and or change. But we'll talk about that right after the break. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back for the final segment on episode 121, all about financial and professional planning for the winter as a professional cultural resource management archaeologist. And in this segment, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, in the past two segments about, you know, the different regional experiences you can have, some of the things you can do when you do have that time off for the winter um, or that while you're working another job, some things you can do to help, you know, your professional career. But in this last segment, I want to talk about our different strategies for actually planning for the winter. Now, as I mentioned in early on in the show, I never had a strategy when I first started. I didn't even know that there was a possibility of being out of work for the winter when I first started in archaeology. It wasn't a, a consideration that nobody that anybody had ever mentioned to me. Um, now, I always managed to find, and this this is because I traveled around a lot, I always managed to actually work over the winter. Um, but there was one winter, my wife and I planned to uh, actually go to Europe for a couple months. We actually, you know, we had the book, we had everything planned out. And then this really cool um, winter excavation in Washington State kind of just like, fell in our laps. And we actually scuttled the Europe plans for this other excavation because it was just a really cool uh, work job. job. And it was going to take about two months, which just completely took over our winter. So we, in, in retrospect, I think we should have gone to Europe. But that being said, it was a fun project. We made some decent money, and um, and it kept us working through the winter. But uh, otherwise, I think a lot of people, and this is really just anecdotal based on people I know and people I've worked with, um, do end up with significant periods of time off from archaeology uh, over the winter. So... I'll go over my process real quick. We can comment on that. And then I want to hear about your guys' processes for how you do that. And we'll see if my voice holds out since I'm getting over a, getting over a cold and some, some throat things here. But basically, I've got a 12-month process. And it's busted, break, broken down into the quarters of the year. So first quarter would be January through March and so on and so forth. And the first quarter of the year, you're just coming out of the previous winter. So you should be thinking about how did that winter go? How did, what, what did you do that you liked? What did you do that you didn't like? What would you change for next year? And start thinking about your goals for the following year. Do you want to move to a different region that has work? Do you want to, um, do you want to plan to be off for two or three months so you can maybe work on a book, maybe go travel, do whatever you're going to do? You, you want to save a bunch of money so you can financially 
accomplish your goals for that um, and also have the money to start the following season, whether it's buying some new gear, getting your vehicle serviced, doing whatever you have to do. You have to take all those things into account. So that's kind of the first quarter goals is figuring out what you're going to do for the rest of the year um, and what you're going to do next winter. Now, second quarter, you're starting. Hopefully you found work by April. That's the start of the second quarter. And you're starting to get things going. And that's when you need to save the most amount of the most of your money because it's the early part of the year. Uh, a lot of people are getting work at that time. Uh, if you're going to get work at any time during the year, it's probably going to be in that uh, in that second quarter because that's when a lot of projects are going to be kicking off. Like Bill said, in some other regions, that might actually start in July, which is the um, third quarter of the year. But in, in, in any case, a lot of people are starting to look for and pick up more work starting at the end of spring and getting into summer. So if you want to have the most opportunity to save the most amount of money, it's obviously going to be when you're working the most. So that's when you need to, you know, go out and have fewer drinks, maybe buy some stuff at the at the store and drink in your room rather than spend a hundred dollars at the bar that night. Um, you know, and just have that financial goal though. Don't just be saving money. Say, I need to save X amount of dollars and I'm going to do that this month. I'm going to save this much next month. I'm going to save that much and so on and so forth. And, um, and then in the third quarter, you're you're starting to uh, you're still saving. Of course, you're always saving as much as you possibly can. Some sometimes it's pretty lean, and you can't save save anything, obviously. But you're still saving as much as you can. But now you're starting to work on your winter plan. You're starting to say, okay, my plan was to couch surf with on friends' couch, and I need to start setting up those dates. I'm going to stay with you for two weeks. I'm going to stay with you for two weeks. Whatever you're going to do. Um, I'm going to go travel for the winter. I'm going to go to do these things. I'm actually going to write that book I've been setting aside and I'm going to plan out the days I'm going to do that. You're going to plan for the day that you want to be done with work. If you're just going to be proactive about it, say, listen, December 1st, I'm not working anymore. I don't even care if a job comes up. I'll have the money. It's in the bank right now. And I want to take that time off. And maybe we should take advantage of the fact that we have a seasonal job. And for peace of mind, just plan to take that time off. Um, it's part of our job. Nobody's going to look at you, uh, look at you, you know, disparagingly if you had three months off from work In other fields, that might be the case in archeology. span That's not the case because it's expected. And then finally the fourth quarter is there and your, your winter is about to start. And again, keep to your goals, keep to your plan. Uh, if you find something that's just amazing work-wise and you want to change all your plans and actually take that job, like, like my wife and I did that one year, then, you know, do it. Nobody's going to hold your feet to the fire. Uh, nobody's going to punch you in the face for saying, hey, what the hell are you doing? Uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But try to stick to your plan because that's what you've been planning on for the whole entire year. And I guess I'll just close this real quick by saying I think this can be, uh, since most of us don't get retirement, most of us don't get any sort of buy-in unless you're, you know, usually if you're working for a company for 10, 20, 30 years, you're paying into some sort of system where you can then retire. But that's just not the case for archaeologists in most cases. So looking at this quarterly, this four-quarter plan for the year can kind of be a metaphor for your entire career as an archaeologist, especially if you're an early career archaeologist right now. You're in your 20s, mid to early mid, maybe even late 20s. And you're thinking about this the tw your 20s is when you need to be saving the most of your money and putting it into investment strategies that can help you later on and then, you know, building on that. I'm not even going to bring in talking about a family right now because that just adds further complications. But, um, you know, this is uh, this is the idea. So I think, Stephen, you were the first one that uh, chimed in and has a comment on this. Uh, yeah. Along those lines, if you can, if you 
you're working on your plan and you're trying to save money for the winter, which may or may not be possible. But, you know, if, if you're doing that, you're, you're maintaining like a savings, you know, buffer and stuff like that. And then you get to the winter and you find opportunities for other employment, you know, consider doing that instead and, and, and putting that savings towards, you know, more towards retirement. Because um, the earlier you can get money into savings for that, it, you know, the better. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. And things like life insurance and stuff like that, if you want to pay into a policy for that, doing it when you're young is going to be cheaper. And then you'll have after 10, 15, 20 years, whatever the insurance policy is. Once you have that paid off, you've then got that for the rest of your life in some cases. We're looking at that right now. Uh, I mean, I'm 42 and I'm setting up a policy now. I should have done it when I was 25, but I didn't know any better. So, um, and I'm going to pay a little more because of that. Um, all right. Well, Steven, since we're talking to you, what, uh, you know, what has been, what has been your plan? Um, I, I know you've had a slightly different situation, but either, either what has been your plan or what have you maybe advised other people to do? Cause you have had field techs work for you in the past. Maybe they've asked you questions. Maybe you've seen some things, but what are your ideas on giving advice for planning for the winter? I don't know that, uh, well, when I was a field tech, um, kind of like you, I, I, I didn't really plan too much about the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would, I would work until there wasn't work and then I would go find more work. Right. Um, in some cases that was working retail in, in others. Um, you know, I would, uh, kind of head South, do the, do the migration, um, worked in Georgia one winter mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, keep, keeps the bills going. Right. Um, right. uh, you know, other people I know, um, you know, I mean, there's employment insurance and, and that, that's kind of my fallback for, um, for right now. Like if, if, you know, something happened and I got let go for the winter, um, I would have enough, uh, employment insurance that, you know, I can make ends meet. It might be tough, but you know, that's, that's what it's for. Now you're not, you're not talking about unemployment you're talking about employment insurance. Can you explain a little bit more about that? It, it is un- unemployment. It's what they call okay. it here. Oh, um, I got you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, a little bit's taken out of your paycheck every, you know, every paycheck. Um, and then, you know, you're basically give, you know, you get your unemployment, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but but here it's uh, called employment insurance. Okay. Um, you're, you're paying in. It's it's basically an insurance plan run by the province that you're paying into to uh, if you, if you become unemployed you get a certain amount back, but yeah you know I mean that's something to consider uh, and and then you start having to do the math of like you know um, if I take in, like a minimum wage job is you know am I going to make as much as I would if I just you know hung out on uh, employment insurance mm-hmm. so. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and so as far as like what I would recommend, yeah, well, you know, th- those are the common options and yeah, uh, you know, keep your options open. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have a backup plan, but you know, if, if other opportunities open up, that's, that's when you run with it. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So Doug, what are some of the uh, strategies you've employed or heard of or seen employed for preparing for the winter? I just have, I'd say there's like one piece of advice, uh, mainly Mm -hmm. because I've worked in in areas where either my company has decided to keep me on. um, So during the winter, though, lab work, lots and lots of lab work, um, Mm -hmm. looked at 
I don't know how many thousand lithics and recorded those. <laughs> um, so I've been lucky in that case. Uh, the only advice is that be aware of deadlines. So uh, there are some companies out there that will wait till right before Christmas. And then this matters more um, probably in the UK, but you know, if, if they have to give you time off, paid time off for holidays, there will be some companies that will wait till just the very end and then lay you off right before before Christmas or New Year's so they don't have to give you your paid, you know, they don't have to pay you to not do anything but have your holidays. Mm-hmm. So that's my only advice for people is just be aware that um, it's, it's happening less because, you know, it's not very moral, but there are some people out there who will basically keep you employed all the way up till December 23rd and then hand you a, a notice saying, oh, we're letting you go. And then a couple of weeks later, call you up and be like, oh, we have work again. Um, but that's, that's my only advice to people is just be aware that if you're coming up on holidays, uh, some companies will let you go right before the holidays mm-hmm. and they'll try to hire you back uh, just so they don't have to pay you over the holidays. <laughs> um, yeah. But I've, I've been lucky in the sense I haven't had to worry too much about uh, winter work. Um, I actually find it, at least in the UK, easier to, to find work during the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, students are back in school, so there's not as much interest. And by the time winter hits, people have kind of given up looking and not a lot of people are interested in actually being out in the cold and the rain and the wind mm-hmm. um, in like zero degree weather, uh, zero degree Celsius. So 32 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Right. Um, so. I actually find it's easier to get work in the winter, but that's just been my personal circumstances. So, sorry, I don't have much to add to uh, <laughs> things to prepare for. Well, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that uh, that has to be part of this discussion is if you find yourself not working archaeology over the winter, and that was kind of a surprise to you, uh, and you'd rather be working in archaeology, whether it's lab work or in another region, but you couldn't get those jobs. Um, it might be because you weren't qualified for those jobs. So one of the things you can do while you're contemplating your existence over the winter and working at the gap, uh, or working in a coffee shop or stocking groceries is you can be thinking of ways to enhance your own CV and your own personal skill set, and think, well, why didn't I get that job? And what can I do this coming year to enhance my skill set so I can get that job over the winter next year in a lab or something like that? Maybe, maybe you've never worked in a lab and you have to actively seek some lab work over the year so you can build those skills and and find somebody that will take you in and teach you or uh, or learn some other stuff. So. Um, we're going to close out this segment and this show with Bill and, uh, and some of his advice for, for the field and for students. Yeah, my experience is really similar to Doug's in that I was able to um, keep employment most of the time when I was doing CRM. The main time that I always ended up being out of a job is when I was a student. And so for students, the, uh, the winter is crippling. It's you know four weeks of no job. But the summer can be even more devastating because it's actually – three full months of you not knowing what you're going to do. So I guess my comment, uh, the way that I used to survive as a graduate student is um, either have a part-time job like being a cashier or um, finding some kind of a way to get a job in a lab at the university or something like that. But the number one thing that I spent my time doing is saving up cash so that I could go to the conference so I could hustle up summer work. Um, So 
I, you know, gave a presentation, I'd find some kind of a way to get to whatever regional conference or, uh, or national one, uh, or international one. And then I'd get there and I'd, and in the beginning, of course, I, I think I was that super annoying graduate student who was pretty much on their knees groveling for a summer job, you know, all over the place. And I can only imagine how embarrassing I used to be. But, uh, <laughs> you know, now I've known a little bit more and the key is just to uh, introduce yourself and be the kind of personable individual that they would ever want to work with. And so you just, um, in, in the winter, I would try to find some kind of a way to stay alive. But the whole goal was to spend that winter planning how I was going to get into connection with people who actually ran companies or had jobs so that I could spend the spring while I was in school and couldn't work 40 hours a week trying to leverage those connections into a position that would keep me alive during the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, as a, as a um, PhD student, my fall was spent applying for grant money to keep me alive doing some kind of project during the summer, but also trying to get feelers out in the department or with other cultural resources companies uh, so that when May came along or even April came along, I kind of knew where I was going to go. I knew I was going to go on someone's uh, um, dissertation funded project or some NSF project, or I was going to work as a tech for the summer for another CRM company. By April, I kind of knew what was going to happen come May. And, you know, at the time, especially as a PhD student, I had a family to take care of. And so my obligations to, for our mortgage and our bills and stuff, that didn't change during the summer. So I guess the winter work for students should be trying to find summer work. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting uh, uh, perspective. I didn't really thought about that. Yeah, for all students, I mean, it's totally flipped. You you have work over the winter, but not over the summer. That's interesting. Um, Doug, you had a comment or uh, um, some advice. Yeah, it was just a, a bit riffing off of Bill. Uh, a lot of people wait way too long before they start to apply for jobs. So mm -hmm. uh, if you're looking for like a Fed job, a lot of those start being advertised for the summer in February or March or January. So if you are, if you do find yourself, you know, looking for stuff to do during the winter, remember towards the end of that time, that's when a lot of jobs get advertised. And right. a lot of those temporary jobs only get advertised in the spring. So if you wait till May or June, hoping to get one of those, uh, you know, forest service jobs or anything like that, mm -hmm. they're all gone. They've all been uh, filled by that point. So just to add that, you know, a deadline for most of the federal jobs, they tend to be late winter, early spring, I guess. Well, I guess it depends where you, where you call spring and winter, but you know, <laughs> February, March, yeah. uh, that's the time where you need to be, if you're thinking about going for one of those federal jobs, that's when you need to do it uh, for the, you know, temporary crew chiefs and mm -hmm. uh, techs and a lot of other people as well. If it's big projects that they know are going to happen during the summer, they don't wait until like two weeks before. I mean, they, they might call you up two weeks before, but they'll probably put out the job advert um, with some advance notice. So just mm -hmm. to let people, you know, remember that there's those deadlines. Yeah, that's great advice. And it extends to um, to some of your other work as well, which is planning ahead. And uh, I'll just wrap up with this comment about that. You know, it's it's always a, a good feeling, I think, once you once you get used to it, to actually turn jobs down. Like I've, I've applied for, you know, back when I was really heavy field teching, my wife and I, you know, when it was coming, you know, a few weeks to the end of a job, we'd start trolling shovel bums and arc field work and really just sending out flurries of resumes. And sometimes 
we had to look and, you know, we'd be offered two, three, four positions and have to take the one that, that best fits us. And I think, I think most CRM archaeology companies, you know, while they might be slightly pissed that they're calling you to offer you a job and you're going to turn them down, they're also calling other people. And if they're smart about it, they need 15 people, but they're calling 20, you know, something like that, because they know some people's schedules are going to change from when they turn in the resume and when they can actually start the work. And that's just part of the business. So, you know, planning, like Doug said, for the Fed jobs in the summer, planning in the late winter, early spring for those, that extends right to just keeping your eyes out on social media, listening to conversations, um, even your local papers and stuff and saying, hey, uh, you know, this company wants to do this massive project, this huge pipeline they're talking about putting in. Start putting feelers out for that. You know, hey, what companies are going to be working on this? What's going on with that? And start doing some of that networking that Bill's always talking about and putting your resume out there and and being proactive and contacting people and then and then putting a whole bunch of stuff out there and just seeing what comes back to you. So. Anyway, there's a lot more we could say on this. Um, I will say for professional members of the membership system on the APN, we're going to have some uh, some extended, uh, I guess, extended podcasts, for lack of a better word. They're really videos with um, with presentations to go along with them that highlight my process. And if I and if anybody else has a has a year long process or something they want to talk about that we can put in that content for other people to benefit from, just contact me and we'll get you on there and we'll get you to put it in there. So. Um, cause the only thing I can talk about is the one I have, so <laughs> I can't talk about anything else. Um, but there's more than one way to do this. Uh, again, take everything that we said with a grain of salt. It's, it's different based on where you're at for your own personal situation. If you have kids and a family, much of what we said, uh, might not work for you. Um, but some of it might, who knows? It just depends on your situation and how you operate throughout the year. So uh, please leave comments, have a discussion about this, um, because I think a solid discussion either on Facebook or on the page for the show or wherever you found it will help. Just reading those comments will probably help other people plan for their time in the winter and some things that they may not have thought about. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> did, did I hear Steven? Bye.
This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.